Hello, and welcome to the special year ahead edition of On Point, a podcast series where we explore the post-pandemic economy and the biggest themes and events shaping outlook for 2022. I'm John Briggs, Global Head of Death Strategy, and today I'll be speaking on one of the most critical topics for 2022, which is the shortage of everything in the post-pandemic economy. I'm joined by Ross Walker, our Chief UK Economist and Co-Head of Global Economics, Hei Xin Liu, our China Chief Economist, Brian Dangerfield, our Co-Head of G10FX Strategy, and Neil Parker, FX Market Strategist. I'm going to divide this massive topic of shortages into two segments. First is labor. Second is goods and inputs into their production. So let's start with labor. And on that, I'm going to turn to Ross. Ross, both the UK and the US have seen a tighter labor market for longer than many initially expected. Are there common causes here or are there unique differences between the US and the UK that are impacting labor shortages? Well, the headline data trends are are very similar. And <clears throat> we've obviously seen in survey data, uh, widespread reports of, of skill shortages. Often these surveys are running at multi-decade highs. Um, you see some common features, for example, increases in the number of people retiring perhaps earlier, uh, increases in student numbers. These are typical features that you see during, during downturns. So in some respects, the data um, have an air of normality about them, but obviously the speed of the and extent of the lockdowns and reopening is, is playing havoc with, um, <clears throat> with, with, with these processes. I think the, the, the problems in the UK are probably more acute, uh, and I think certainly you can see two Brexit-related impacts that I, I would highlight. Firstly, in the UK, uh, there has been quite a dramatic slowdown in the growth of the working age population. Um, some of that will reflect some of the factors we've, we've just mentioned, um, people leaving the labour market to retire earlier. But there, there does seem to be a sizable uh, Brexit-related impact here. And we see in the detail of the UK employment statistics <clears throat> where you get employment data by nationality. Through 2020, there was really quite a dramatic fall in the employment of EU nationals in the UK. Um, and anecdotally, that seems to fit with this idea that many people uh, will have returned to their, their home countries during the, the pandemic. Of course, what we don't really have a, a good handle on yet is, is how many uh, will return. Probably only a, a relatively low fraction of the, the numbers who left, given that post-Brexit, um, you know, free, free movement of labour no longer uh, exists between the UK and, and the EU. So <clears throat> there are, I think, more structural features in the UK um, but equally in the US, we've seen some interesting trends. For example, uh, female participation has not recovered to the same degree as male participation. So perhaps there are uh, childcare issues. There also there's also some evidence, more evidence, I think, in the US that ongoing COVID health concerns are maybe holding back some people from returning to the labour market. So it's it's a more complicated picture than usual. Um, but it does look like these um, these supply impediments are, are going to persist for longer. And it's a theme, I think, that will probably run through most of uh, most of 2022. So when you say these things are going to last for longer, is there any visibility on when this stuff might ease? Or given the complex nature of it, is it just inherently unpredictable? Yeah, the unprecedented nature of the shock, I think, means this, this is a difficult thing to, to forecast. But, you know, we've done our own, our own surveys of our client base and the sort of central case for many firms is that this would be 
they expect these these disruptions and recruitment issues to persist for around a year. Um, the Bank of England's latest forecasts show a similar pattern. They're talking about the end of 2022 before they think some of these um, skill shortages, uh, these skill shortage pressures will, will begin to alleviate. And that seems to fit as well with looking at sort of macro GDP projections. It probably won't be until the second half of 2022 that you see quarterly growth rates returning to a more normal, sustainable pace as the level of output has has normalized. And against that backdrop, you probably start to get as a follow through uh, a, a more, more, more normal, more familiar features in terms of employment demand, employment growth and, and, and labor demand. Yeah, and there's been similar survey results in the U.S. as well. So when you think about potential tightness in labor markets, both from you know firms hiring perspectives, but also you know from a potential wage inflationary perspective, it does look like a lot of this is going to last through um, well into next year at least. So that's the labor market side. Shifting to the goods side of things, Shen, asking you to unravel and solve for the entire global supply chain, I think, is beyond the reasonable scope of this podcast, but. You've looked at a few things specifically. Let's start with um, semiconductors, which go into so many products nowadays. Um, what did you find? Do you think that chip shortages are going to be relieved anytime soon, or are we looking at a long timeline there also? Thank you for the question, John. Uh, for semiconductor supplies uh, specifically, I think we have to go back a little bit to see that uh, semiconductor supplies have been highly cyclical. In the past decade, we typically experienced a semiconductor boom and bust cycle in three years. And for the latest cycle of semiconductor supplies, firms began their inventory buildup and investments in 2019, in fact, just before the pandemic hit. So uh, the pandemic-related lockdowns, uh, mainly uh, in early 2020, have put many firms on hold for their investment and inventory build-up plans, leading to a supply shortage. And we're turning back a little bit to demand side as well. We have experienced more explosive demand for semiconductor and its related products because of this permanent shift in work-from-home demand, as well as uh, we call it a hybrid working model. So the demand for electric, electrical and electronic goods looks here to stay, but we're not uh, ramping up with supplies for, from this perspective. The good news is that uh, firms uh, East Asia, which accounts for around 80% of global semiconductor supplies, are now fully up and running, and they are building up uh, production capacity in various locations. But the bad news is that even though the clock is ticking, we still need to be patient to wait for the production to be put into full uh, operation, which probably takes another year or so. So we think that we're probably going to see significant ease in semiconductor supplies well into late 2022 or even early 2023. All right, so we're starting to hear a lot of, lot of late next year type uh, scenarios here um, across this shortages theme. So... It's not just about the goods itself, though, but about the shortage of containers moving them from place to place. What did you find on that subject? Yes, for the, uh, for the shipping problem, I think it's also a, a mismatch of demand and supply, but I would like to analyze that from a geographical perspective. Uh, Post-pandemic recovery, we have seen much more, uh, uh, we have experienced a much more production side recovery in East Asia, emerging markets broadly even, but a much more... Uh, a stronger recovery in demand side from the developed markets, which resulted uh, demand for goods movement from the 
emerging markets due to the developed countries, some of the shipping routes are experiencing experiencing particularly acute shortages. For example, uh, shipping routes from East Asia, China particularly, to North America, West Coast America's uh, shipping costs have been coming up 10 times that of pre-COVID levels, which means that the shortage has been much more acute than previously expected. So, uh, but we think that the worst might be behind us as uh, more countries are returning to full operations after the pandemic is under control. But we don't really expect any significant easing of shipping costs right below or at the pre-COVID levels. It's more likely that we're going to see more sticky prices, uh, normalization, and we're probably going to settle at a new equilibrium after the pandemic, which is above what we have seen before the pandemic. All right, we'll save that um, higher shipping cost note for when I turn to Neil a little bit later. But um, for the moment, we're going to keep going down the chain here and look at not just, okay, so semiconductors is a good as an example, but in the shipping, but also the input costs themselves. And, you know, here I'm going to talk, turn to Brian. Brian, a lot of commodity prices have been on the rise as well. And there's been, you know, discussions about shortage, shortages of a lot of these um, inputs into production. But in particular, energy, which is both an input cost and then obviously an outright cost to um, corporations and consumers, which have been rising. What about what about energy here? Is there any hope that we see some relief on the energy front into or during 2022? Well, thanks very much, John. So in the near term, unfortunately, I don't think so. I think at the core, there is a supply demand imbalance that we've been talking about for a lot of goods. Um, and oil is no exception. There has been a a uh, voracious and really, um, you know, um, a very strong recovery in demand um, that's been almost resilient to different waves, uh, to, to new waves of, of, of COVID, um, specifically Delta variant in 2021. Um, travel has, demand for travel has picked up and uh, we expect in 2022 increased business and international travel demand to continue that trend. Um, and as mentioned throughout this call, the demand for goods and the demand to ship goods and you know use the fuel involved in shipping those goods is expected to remain quite high. On the supply side, you really have two factors holding down supply from a broad perspective. You have two regions, let's say you have OPEC, which has been slow playing the recovery in demand really for the duration of the pandemic. We expect that to continue. And then on the other side, you have the US in particular, but developed markets as a whole, production in, in the US and developed markets has been very slow to recover back to pre-pandemic levels. And I think there's a capital-related issue involved, but there's also, uh, it's unavoidable, the impacts of the ESG and the push towards more environmentally friendly forms of of energy and how that change in incentives influences the ability of U.S. fossil fuel production to really rise back to, let's call it the Trump levels um, of production. So we have supply that's likely going to remain relatively slow to come back online, even as prices are rising, that obviously drives production back. And demand is probably going to stay strong. And I'll add maybe one more point that all of these shortages feed into each other. There's nothing that's independent as we discuss this. Oil feeds into the, uh, the, the shipping shortages. It feeds into goods shortages around the world. But labor shortages also feed into energy market shortages that, you know, getting individuals to you know, work oil rigs is part of this story. And so all of this, I think, is linked together. And so, you know, as shortages take longer to normalize, and I think many hope, 
oil is very much involved in this from both an input and an output perspective. I like your point there about the interlinkages, because when you tie some of the earlier things we talked about together, you know, in the U.S., we had port backups in, in the West Coast. So they moved a lot of those containers to the East Coast and they couldn't find truck drivers to move the containers. So they got them off the ships, but they've been sitting in ports. So I think it's a very important point about how all of this comes together. But off that, I'm going to turn actually now to Neil Parker for probably the most difficult question of this entire recording, which is, all right, so Neil, you're 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 sitting in the C-suite of um, your average corporation. You know, you've heard what we just went through. Um, you know, from from a corporate perspective, you did chip shortages, product shortages, the shipping. You know, maybe the worst is behind us, but shipping costs are probably going to stay sticky. Inner energy, as Brian just went through. How does one plan or hedge for all this? And and from a corporation lens, how do you think about this? Yeah, the. the- the planning, the hedging for a lot of this is um, is not easy for the vast majority of those businesses in a in a mid cap space. So, not the largest corporations, but equally not the smallest either. Um, you know, the, the, those companies that are the lifeblood of of many economies are trying to build more flexibility into their pricing. So they're trying to say, well, look, this is our price, but it's based off of what we're paying for certain raw materials or what we're paying for semi-manufactured product but of course by building that flexibility into their own pricing that's potentially inflationary because their pricing is going to adjust if these prices continue to remain elevated they're trying to control better what what is controllable but that's really working around the margins so there's more dynamic fx hedging that relies less on just spot and forward prices and more on optionality. So again, that gives them the ability to absorb adjustments when they go in the wrong way, but benefit from adjustments when they go in the right way. But as I say, that's that's probably you're talking about a few percentage points there um, that you might be saving um, when you've seen some of your pricing going up 40, 50, 60% this year. Um, if you look at commodity prices, I think the um, the CRB index is up about 40% year to date. So, you know, that gives you some uh, some indication of that they, they can play at the margin, but eventually they're going to have to put their prices up. Um, Ross, a uh, week or two ago, showed a very interesting graph um, talking about input price inflation versus output price inflation and output price inflation in the UK lagging a long way behind input price inflation. So this will have a reckoning at some stage as far as corporates and, and their adjustments uh, that they will make. But going back to one of the uh, points that was made by Pishan um, with regard to containers, the, the big problem has been actually getting containers, actually getting space on ships rather than the price. Because regardless of the price, uh, a lot of companies are saying um, they are not being given a, a a clear direction of when the goods will be delivered. Um, and that is a, a much larger problem, particularly at a very important period for retail um, across the Western world. So in terms of planning and hedging, there's stuff that has been done, but that there's there's bits and pieces, probably the larger component that they're just having to wear in terms of either reduced margins or higher prices and, and that being passed through the price chain. When you when you sort of put all of that together, their corporate's concern when you speak to them is that what is considered temporary 
at a central bank level is anything but that at a corporate level. They're going to have to make these changes. Um, and as a consequence, yes, you might see inflation eventually uh, falling away, but they see it as more a medium-term problem than a short-term problem. They see it lasting well beyond the end of 2022. Um, and I think that it, it is a different perspective when you speak to a lot of corporates because they're saying, look, if this lasts two years, that's 40% of our five-year plan. Um, and we're just having to rip those five-year plans up uh, and start all over again. Uh, but equally, they don't like, whilst they don't like inflation, they don't like rate hikes either. They don't like interest rates being tightened and monetary policy um, being tightened because they feel that that actually exacerbates the problem further. Their funding costs then go up alongside all their other input costs. Yeah, and I think that that's something that, you know, Ross has discussed and actually is in another one of our other podcasts about central bank reaction functions that he, he I know he's concerned about, um, which is that you've got corporations getting squeezed from various areas. Is this the right time to be on a march towards, you know, much higher inflation rates, even if it is a year long su supply shock um, driven uh, incentive on the, at least on, you know, when it comes to the Bank of England perspective, because it's an incredible challenge, I think, for corporates right now. And then you add in the interest rate side of things, and it just feels like, you know, an, a nearly impossible situation for which to, to maneuver here in the short term. But I will say that give, even though it is an incredible challenge, it's one that, um, at least from our side, I know we're going to continue to visit into and through 2022. These are, you know, it's a moving timeline. These are moving timetables. And, you know, we're going to we're going to keep looking into it um, on these subjects and additional ones because of the wide implications across investor bases, asset managers, corporations, you know, everybody, and especially probably most importantly, us as consumers. So thank you for listening today, everyone. To get more insight into the year ahead, please navigate to ci.natwest.com slash year ahead and follow us on social media. Thank you very much.